continuing the account of the foundation of the Western monastic community of uh, Lumpo Cha's disciples. And this uh, section is called The Twain Shall Meet. So that's uh, from the uh, 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 Rudyard Kipling poem, East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. So this is saying the twain, which means the two different things, the, two, the twain shall meet. East and West meeting together. So there's a lot of literary quotations that Ajahn Jayasaro um, weaves in here along the way. So some of you might recognize these, some of you will not. So like calling April the, cru- the cruelest month for the hot season in Thailand, that comes from uh, T.S. Eliot, uh, I think what, the beginning of the wasteland. April is the cruelest month, coaxing lilacs out of the dead ground. And such like. So anyway, this is about Watpa Nanachat, the International Forest Monastery. By 1975, there were almost 20 Western monks at Wadbapong, about a quarter of the resident Sangha. This rapid and significant influx brought with it inevitable tensions. Although the organization of the monastery and a common faith and confidence in Lumpur kept the situation workable, minor but niggling conflicts between the Thais and the Farangs became increasingly common. So the word farang is the usual term in Thailand for a, a foreigner. It actually comes from French, the, from Farangse. So the, the French were apparently the original, the first European colonizers or visitors into, um, uh, into Thailand. So all foreigners became called, became called French. So farangs is the general term for, for foreigners, particularly Westerners. The first generation of Western monks was predominantly North American. These were young men used to an informal, unregimented life, to expressing their feelings about things freely, using their initiative. Many of them had robust personalities. (laughs) That's a polite way of putting it. (laughs) In an era when travel to Southeast Asia was a lot more daunting than it is today, the path to a forest in Northeast Thailand was not an easy or straightforward one to take. Having to conform to the Vinaya, to many rules and regulations that they could not always see the reason for, could easily provoke the rebellious side of their nature. The Thai monks, almost all brought up in local villages, could be dazzled by the exoticness of the Westerners. They admired them for their renunciation, but were puzzled, amused, and occasionally repelled by their gaucheness and failures to govern emotion. So gaucheness, so gauche... um, Again, comes from a French word, gauche, a gauche, <laughs> off, on, uh, off to one side. So uh, gaucheness means being kind of, uh, say, a bit um, arrogant or insensitive and uh, reacting to your feelings, um, a bit kind of uh, full of yourself and um, uh, disrespectful or uh, insensitive to the people around you, so to be a bit gauche. Uh, that's what that means. So failures to govern emotions. So also uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Thai cultural form is uh, emotions are not uh, freely uh, or as openly expressed as is often the case in uh, amongst Westerners. So that uh, you um, uh, have a as a Westerner, you're a lot less restrained or a lot, a lot more expressive or, or ready to let people know exactly what you're feeling at any uh, at, a, at any time, which is. Uh, somewhat different from a general uh, Thai 
style, uh, a social cultural style of restraint and containment, and not particularly with aggression. Uh, you never express uh, aggression or confrontation uh, in the same way that we would in the West, and particularly Americans. You know, that uh, as I mentioned a, a few weeks ago, um, one of the uh, common statements or, or declarations in America is, "If you're not angry, you're not paying attention." That sense of you know you should be upset you, know, you should get it, get angry get upset, uh, and so that's a very very different current to what you have in the Thai cultural forms. Sometimes the Thai monks were made uncomfortable by what they saw as Westerners' over familiar manner towards Lumpur, or else they envied their easy access to him. These tensions did not run particularly deep. Essentially, they were little more than ripples on a placid forest pool. In the monastery as a whole, attitudes of tolerance and goodwill towards the foreign monks usually far outweighed any negativity. But even so, Lumpur was aware that certain changes needed to be made. His solution was to reduce the number of Western monks at Wapapong by establishing a branch monastery especially for them. Problems at Wapapong were not the only reason for his decision. Lumpur saw that, in future, many of the Western monks would want to return to the West and establish monasteries there. Before that happened, he wanted them to gain experience in running their own affairs. In particular, he wanted to train Ajahn Sumato in the role of abbot of a monastery. It would also be good to have a place where the Westerners could practice together, where the teaching would be in English, and where the food could be blander and more suited to a Western palate. Monks could alternate between spending time with him and living at this new monastery. So he started to consider the idea aloud. So he would talk about that from time to time, that hey, it'd be good if we had a, a monastery for the foreigners, and sort of floating the idea, or, or um, what the, we say, uh, English expression, thinking out loud is a, a, a common way of talking about that. At first, Ajahn Sumato, the prospective leader of the new community, was not enthusiastic. He had no wish to take on such a responsibility. But, as time passed, he began to consider his resistance to be selfish and decided to trust in Lumpur's judgment. That hot season of 1975, Ajahn Sumedho's large cast-iron arms bowl developed a rust patch and needed to be re-fired. Lumpur gave permission to him and four other foreign monks to walk over to the cremation forest of Bungwai village, some nine kilometres to the northwest of Watpapong, and there they would find a plentiful supply of wood and could combine a bowl-firing expedition with a short retreat. So a, a little um, aside on um, arms bowls. So before stainless steel was uh, around in Thailand, uh, the arms bowl was always made of, of soft steel, and uh, that is very subject to, to rusting. And um, the, one of the ways that you can protect soft steel from, from rust is you bake it in a very hot fire, um, and that creates a, an oxide coating over the whole surface, and then that is very water-resistant, and you can keep it for a long time. If the oxide coating gets cracked or chipped, then uh, a rust patch eas easily forms in that spot, so that um, if, you, uh, if you get a, a, a patch of rust or... or um, the, the oxide coating breaks away, then you need to refire your bowl in the near future. So the first arms bowl I had when I, I was a novice had five holes in it. And so 
if you um, actually holes all the way through, so that uh, it was made it made it a bit leaky. <laughs> but uh, the customary way of of uh, resolving that, if you weren't going to, if there was no other no other bowl available, uh, was you'd fill the the um, the holes with beeswax, so that you're having to look after your bowl on a on a daily basis, and then. Um, see if the store's monk would let you have a, a fresh bowl. And it, it, according to the Vinaya, if you have got more than five holes, you can ask to exchange it. But uh, I was an, a fairly new novice, and so I didn't carry enough weight to get a new bowl, so I had a, a, a bowl with five holes in it for quite a long time. Anyway, so they were going to, uh, to the Bungwai village to, uh, to fire uh, the alms bowls and to have a bit of a retreat there. For many years, a group of villagers from Ban Bungwai, Bungwai village, had been walking over to Watpapong on every observance day, so once a week on the quarters of the moon, for a day and night of Dhamma practice. They were excited at the idea of having monks come to live outside their own village. Soon, a deputation went to Silumpur and asked him to give permission for the Western monks to spend the whole rains retreat in the Bungwai cremation forest. They would build huts for the monks to live in. It was an opportune moment, and Bungwai was not far away. Lumpur agreed. So again, a little um, aside on what they mean by a cremation forest. So in, uh, in northeast Thailand, um, uh, and probably other parts of the country as well, it was very uh, common for with a, a village, they wouldn't want to have a crematorium, or they wouldn't be want, wanting to burn bodies inside the village. Um, the fear of ghosts and... Um, and such like um, superstitions and such, uh, uh, say, considerations meant they would always have a patch of forest outside the village. So most of the land around would be uh, made into paddy fields or they'd be growing um, other crops out there, jute sometimes to, to make ropes and bags with. Uh, but um, mostly it'd be rice fields, but they'd leave a patch of forest and then the forest would be where they would hold the cremations because the idea, our understanding was that when um, some person's life has, has come to a, a close and they are cremated, if there happens to be a, a ghost uh, a consciousness hovering around, then they like to have a bit of forest to live in, they like to be amongst the trees. And so if there are going to be any ghosts, they're outside the village. And so then that piece of forest would be protected. So often when, uh, when Sangha members were going on Tudong, wandering through the countryside, um, you could usually find a patch of forest near a village where you could camp and, and practice meditation that was both quiet and away from the village, close enough for arms round, but also had the advantage of having the possibility of ghosts and as well as wild animals to test your meditation with. So um, outside Bungwai village there was this um, little patch of forest where they had their cremations and it was also the site of, a, of an ancient monastery. You could see the, the, the um, boundary stones of an old monastery was still sort of there in the in the forest, so it had been a, a site of a monastery um, hundreds of years, or at least decades before, but probably hundreds of years previously. From the first days of the new venture, Lumpur would make frequent visits. He offered his assistance in various ways. He used his influence to get a dirt road cut right around the forested area, so as to give clearly defined limits to the monastery's land. When the jealous abbot of a local village monastery started to pen anonymous letters to the authorities slandering the Western monks, actually it's uh, libeling the Western monks, Lumpur, with great tact, chaired a meeting in which the problem was resolved. 
Ajahn Sumedho, Pananachat's first abbot, felt grateful for the support as he strived to get to grips with a role that he did not find easy. And this is uh, Lumpur uh, Sumedho speaking here. I could always go to see Lumpur, and he came here quite often. Also, he knew uh, I'd have to learn from trial and error. I remember one time feeling in such a state of despair. All these feelings of being responsible and being totally inadequate to deal with them. He helped me to get some perspective on this feeling of being burdened by responsibilities. I remember one time going to see him in a state of despair and he sensed it immediately and he said, Now you know what it's like to be an abbot. You thought it meant having a big triangular cushion to lean against and the key to the larder. He laughed. Venerable Varapanya recounted his memories of the first rains retreat at Watpan Nanachat. On the first night of the rains retreat, Ajahn Sumedho told us what the schedule would be. The emphasis would clearly be on formal meditation practice. And he encouraged us to just do the practice as it was set up, without second thoughts, and that if we did so, mindfulness would, would become habitual, and we'd find that we'd be able to live our lives out mindfully. That sounded very reasonable to me, and quite wonderful. What more could a person ask for, really? But it still seemed a distant goal. There was also more of a harmony of purpose than I'd felt before. No temporary ordinations, no kids who were in the monastery only because their parents had sent them, and easy communication with each other, without the cultural barriers that could often lead to misunderstanding and bad feeling. This is not to say that everything was perfect, of course. We had much to learn about living with each other, and Ajahn Sumedho had many trials and lessons about being a teacher waiting for him. Still, the overall feeling was very good, and there were many factors that hadn't been present in past situations in other places. The retreat went on. The schedule intensified. It wasn't easy, but it was good. Lumpur would make his usual jokes, calling it Wat Pa Wunwai. So the village name is Bungwai. Bung is uh, like a swamp or a, uh, a kind of um, a, a marshy area. And Wai is uh, Rattan. So it's uh, the Rattan and the Ban means village. So the the uh, Rattan Swamp Village was the name of the, the, of the actual village, uh, but uh, Lumpur Chao called it Wat Pa Wunwai, and Wunwai means confusion. So it was the Forest Monastery of Confusion was his nickname. Forest Monastery of Confusion, or Wat Pa Amerikawat, so the, the Forest Monastery of the uh, Americans. But he obviously thought it was a good thing, and the lay people who came did too. Yet I doubt anyone could have envisioned how the place would develop in the near future. That first rains retreat, there were only nine or ten kutis and two kwartok, which is a grass hut with no floor, just a, a bed on the ground. Ajahn Sumedho lived in a small bamboo kuti with a grass roof, and we had a tiny grass roof dhamma hall with a dirt floor. Umpur, Umpur Cha, did not intercede in the daily running of Vatpananachat. The monks were free to build the monastery as they saw fit. They designed the Dhamma Hall themselves and its layout, with a raised sitting area for the monks running along the side of the hall rather than across the front, was a departure from the norm. Lumpur would often recommend visitors who came to pay respects to him uh, at Wapapong to go and visit Wapananachat as well. One of the first groups to arrive was Bangkok Radio's uh, 01 Dhamma Group. That was read, uh, led by uh, a man called Nai Akom. Every year, a fleet of buses filled with pilgrims from this group would travel up country to visit various monasteries, receive teachings, and make offerings. 
Now they added Wat Pananachat to their, uh, to their itinerary and supported it generously for many years. Mpoor showed some concern that the strong-willed Westerners would find it hard to live together in harmony. Whenever he spoke to the Wat Pananachat Sangha, he emphasized the importance of mutual respect and goodwill. He taught that the protocols governing relationships between monks, based on seniority, prevented old, worldly speech habits from resurfacing, and insisted that they not be relaxed. Honorifics were always to be used. A junior monk's name must always be preceded by the prefix tan, a senior monk's by ajan. Lumpur maintained that without creating an atmosphere of trust and respect in the monastery, meditation practices would not bear fruit. The conventions of right speech had a part to play in achieving this goal. And then there's, um, uh, uh, in that, um, the, the tendency amongst Westerners was to be casual. He, he could see that very easily, so that people would drop the use of honorifics. So they would, instead of saying, tan indapanyu, they'd say, indapanyu, instead of tan balada, or venerable, venerable balada, they'd say balada. Um, and uh, just use a person's name. So Lumpur uh, liked to encourage the use uh, of honorifics to use those uh, ways of speech so that you're, you're not just drifting into your ordinary sort of everyday casual uh, way of referring to people. So I still do that. I, I'm quite rigorous about that. So I won't just say Noriko. I'll say Anagarika Noriko. Uh, and Venerable uh, Indipanya, what do you think? And so that uh, it's... Uh, uh, a way of helping you to uh, not just uh, see others in a uh, in a different way and be more respectful, but also helps to see yourself in a in a different way. Because if other people are calling you venerable or sister or, or ajahn, then it helps to reconfigure the the way you you see yourself and that the um, the that sense of reshaping the view uh, uh, of who and what you are. Is, some, is a, a skillful means, and so that Lumpur Chao was very, uh, one who was, uh, as you said quite regularly, he, he was very, very observant, and he saw what had a good effect and what had a bad effect, and so he would use these kind of tools in a, a very conscious way. Ajahn Amaro, me, uh, was one of the first Westerners who came for a visit and ended up becoming a monk. So I showed up, and what Pananachat had started in 1975, and I showed up there in January of 78. So this is me speaking here. I found a group of Westerners like myself, with very similar backgrounds, who were living in the forest doing Buddhist meditation practice. And they all seemed remarkably cheerful. When they explained their way of life and basis of their practice, it made perfect sense to me. They explained by, that by living a life which is disciplined, simple and harmless, one could discover the true freedom that lies within us. Upon hearing their words, my, my immediate reaction was, how could I have been so stupid not to have seen this before? Very true. <laughs> so it was um, before showing up at Wat Pananachat, I'd been a, 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 a student at London University, but also in more of a sort of hippie anarchist um, section of society. It was, uh, my, philosophically, I was... Uh, uh, very much a, a hippie type, and um, but I, I've been wondering, pondering for years. You know, how can you live in the most sort of skillful way possible? How can you really be harmless? How can you really minimise your possessions? How can you really live uh, harmoniously with with other people and and uh, 
harm, uh, harmlessly. And so then coming across the, the way of life in, in the forest, that everyone was celibate, had no money, uh, no possessions apart from a few robes, lived in a little hut in the woods. It's like, wow. And then also people came along and fed you every day for free. And they were really happy that they could do that. They re rejoiced in the opportunity to give you a free lunch every day. I thought, wow, this is too good to be true. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was true. It was, it was actually true. And so I've been doing it for the last 40 years. But it, it was um, the kind of clarity, particularly the clarity of the teaching and then the focus of the, the, the way of life on meditation and how a, um, you could be very rigorous, very focused in the spiritual work, but without being fanatical or obsessive. So one of the things that was really striking to me when I showed up was that people were obviously very motivated and you know, very focused on being Buddhist um, uh, monastics or meditators. But that, my experience in the past was that people who had that kind of uh, intensity of focus were usually a bit cracked and you know, obsessive or, um, or the completely sort of, uh, uh, say, wedded to their own particular view and were very anti all sorts of other groups and ideas and were um, quite sort of aggressive or, or would complain or criticize others. So one of the things that was really striking um, uh, to me was that, that there could be that kind of intensity of focus, that, that rigor, but without being fanatical, without being sort of glassy-eyed and condemning other groups or being sort of completely obsessed. This is, the, this is the one true way and our teacher is the only enlightened being in the world and this is a, um, the, you know, like a, um, uh, sort of a fanatical devotee of some religious cult. So that was a, 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 a quite a revelation that uh, you can live in this in this very simple and very uh, focused and very uh, say um, de demanding way, but without um, being sort of deluded or fanatical or or a, a, as I said gla glassy eyed about it. Any thoughts, questions? So the next section is called Three Tiers. A three-tiered training was developed for foreign nationals seeking to become monks. After spending some time as lay meditators at Wat, at Wat Papong or Wat Pananachat, those who requested permission to join the Sangha were, if accepted, given the white robes of the lay renunciant or postulant, so the Anagarika. In, sh in a short ceremony marked by a formal commitment to the eight precepts. As postulants, they acted as monastery attendants and absorbed the basics of the monastic training through proximity to the monks and by acts of service. After some months in white, their second step was to enter the Sangha as a novice monk, a samanera. Uh, in the year allotted for novice training, they would lead a life very similar to that of the monks, but without the pressure and requirements of the Vinaya rules. Once the year had passed, applicants considered ready by their mentors would be admitted into the Bhikkhu Sangha through the ceremony of Upasampada, full ordination. For the first five years of their training, junior monks would alternate between living with Lumpur, living at Wat and living at other branch monasteries. As long as Lumpur's health permitted, every stage of the process, every movement between monasteries was either initiated by him or else given his blessing. In the last years of his debilitating illness, 
this power devolved to the abbot of Wat Pananachar. So that's pretty much the same format that we have uh, here and uh, also uh, still carries on there in, in Thailand at, at Wat Pananachar. Um, it's usually um, the, the length of time uh, in the, those earlier parts of training tends to be longer in the West. So in Nanachat, uh, someone might spend, um, yeah, say, f four to six months in white, and then maybe six to eight months, nine months uh, as a summoner, as a novice in the brown robes with the simpler rules. Um, here in the West, uh, for the women's community, they have to be Anagarika for, for two years minimum before they can go into the brown. For the monks, it's a year in white and then a year as a novice, and then uh, they can request uh, full ordination so that it's uh, it's sort of two years plus in the West. Um, and that's sort of evolved fairly organically, and it's seen that within the Thai culture, the Thai environment, there's uh, you're far more sort of absorbed in that that whole field of, of activity. The monastic life is a much, much stronger presence. It's very much a part of society, so that it doesn't need, seem to, to need to take quite so long. In the West, we're a, sort of a, a little isolated outpost, and the rest of the the, the country and the, the um, environment around us is not so in tune with what we're doing. So that uh, longer period of, of the um, different steps of training seems uh, seems most appropriate. <coughs> seems to be what works in the in the best way. Why is there such a difference between men and women? Isn't that a discrimination? Well, it is a discrimination. <laughs> <laughs> what is it based on? Uh, it's based on the fact that we don't have uh, bhikkhunis in this community. So that the, the Sila Dara training is um, uh, a form of training based on the Ten Precepts that was crafted by uh, Lumpur Sumato back in the early 80s. And so um, the, the full ordination for women is not available in this community. So, which, it's extremely rare. There's um, a handful of, of bhikkhunis in Thailand, in a, a two, maybe two or three different monasteries. There's maybe maybe 20, or about, uh, I, I'm not sure, to be honest, I think, but I would say no, certainly no more than 50 in the whole country. And you've got two or 300,000 monks. So it's, uh, it's, it's uh, a very... Um, so the majority of nuns in Thailand are in white on the eight precepts. So even the ten precepts for nuns in Thailand is is extremely rare. Again, there'd just be a few dozen in the whole country. So what uh, Lumpur Sumato established was trying to provide a, a more um, appropriate and renunciate form of training for women that just there was no precedent for in Thailand at all. So in the early 80s, when, when the Sila Dara uh, order was started here in England, um, I don't think there was a single, even 10 precept none in Thailand. It was just a, the... Um, the eight precept form in white was, was was virtually universal, so it was quite a revolutionary move to establish that. So then, working together with with how things are, then it's still like a, a two-year preparatory um, training, but then it, so it's slightly different for the women than it is for the men. We work with the way it is as best we can. It's a long story. That's a, that's a short version. The Western monks appreciated the sense that Lumpur was always aware of what they were doing and had their best interests at heart. Often he would turn up at Vapananachat unannounced, although it must be said that in pre-mobile phone days this was more of a monastic norm than an exception. 
Venerable Jyotiko wrote in a letter to his family. Lumpur plays everything by ear, so he might drop by for a visit next week or so. We heard he's pleased about the Dhammahal project, and he told the lay people that the foreigners need a lot of cakes. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> the next day we had a lot. He always plays with our greed like that. He's always throwing curves at us to keep us on our toes, but that's, uh, that is the only way to understand our nature. See the extremes, and if wisdom comes, then you, you know the middle path. So that uh, yeah, people forget there was a light, there was life before mobile phones, and so there was a, a lot more surprises. Um, so when I I lived at Wat Nanachat, um, and Lumpur would just come by and visit for a, a few hours, or sometimes stay a couple of days, and um, that was uh, not uh, not uncommon. But you'd never really know. Uh, there was no kind of plan or system. It was just it would just happen um, from time to time, and. Uh, and there was a, a very um, sincere caring. And um, by the time I arrived, uh, Lumpur Sumedha was already here in, in England, and the, they were in, in London at the Hampstead Buddhist Vihara, and, uh, and Chithurst uh, was um, uh, about to begin, and that started in, in summer of 79, uh, 79. So June of 79 was when Chithurst began. So um, I didn't meet Ajahn Sumedha until I came back to England. Uh, but the, the flow of life at Wat Pananachat had been so well established. And um, so the abbot at the time when I came was Ajahn Pabakro, who's another American, uh, former uh, American soldier, a helicopter pilot from uh, the Vietnam War. And uh, so it, it, was, uh, it had been established for three or four years by that time, but it had quite a, a steady momentum. And also because Ajahn Pabakro was a new abbot, then I think Lumpur also felt like he wanted to come in and give him a bit of uh, moral support and help him along, um, realizing that the, the role of abbot is not just a big cushion to lean on and the first choice of the, of the, uh, the, the food and such like. So the next section is called Out on a Limb. Most of the Western monks wanted to be close to Lumpur, but accepted that their training would include spells away from him at Wat Bananachat and other branch monasteries. Life at a branch was usually a mixed experience. Western monks were a novelty in the rural Isan of the mid-70s. Being the single foreign monk in a monastery brought with it a special, almost celebrity status. Some found this amusing, others distracting. Learning the language, one of the main goals of training in a branch monastery, was not an easy task as there were as there were, in fact, two languages to navigate. Casual conversation would usually be conducted in the Isan dialect, as thick as yogurt, quote-unquote, as one monk complained, with central Thai used on more formal occasions. Not understanding much of what was going on around them could be stressful in a culture where few things were planned far in advance, and everyone was expected to be on their toes and ready to accept whatever came up. The presence of teenage novices with all of their adolescent energy, could also be challenging. The Sangha at many branch monasteries included a number of sons of local supporters sent by their parents for the abbot to straighten out. The need to keep these lads busy meant that work projects were a common feature of life at a branch monastery. A young Swedish monk, Venerable Natiko, gave a sense of the atmosphere in a letter. All this work is exhausting some days. One evening, sitting after a long day's work, I was overwhelmed by sleepiness and just fell asleep, bent forward with my head on my chest. 
I didn't even wake up at the bell. It was a hilarious situation, me slowly coming to life while they waited to start, to start chanting. The monks knew how sensitive I'd become here to being laughed at, but a novice or two couldn't restrain themselves, and soon most of the Sangha was roaring with laughter, including the Ajahn. It was so bad, it was good. <laughs> so when I uh, first went to, to Wat Nanachat, uh, even though there's usually uh, just a Western community there, there were two young novices, Boom and Bam, and so the, 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 uh, Lumpur Chah had sent them along, um, so uh, Bam was um, one, of the, one of these lads who had been sent to, to be straightened out. So he, he went to, to Wat Bapong, but it, he was not, they didn't succeed in straightening him out there. So Lumpur Chah will try the furong, yeah, send him to the furongs and see if that makes a difference. So he was um, uh, very, very confident and um, he ha- was uh, um, kind of uh, interested to be around the Westerners and kind of not. So, uh, you know, I've been sent here, yeah, but uh, it, it was um, uh, a bit of a, a grumpy type. And the other one, uh, Boom, was a, a sort of polar opposite. And he was very, very gentle, very sweet, um, and uh, a very, very kind of harmless uh, character. So they were, uh, in my early days of life at Wapananashat, then Boom and Bam were... Uh, you know, very much a part of the life there, and um, I've sometimes uh, uh, <coughs> mentioned when uh, you know I was I tended to be very idealistic, and, and like I was saying about the conversation I had with with uh, Tan Titapo about when he his the the bank in the Cayman Islands that collapsed and all his money disappeared, and I said, oh, that's all right, you know, you were a monk, you didn't need it anyway, and he kind of looked at me like you're out of your mind, <laughs> and. Um, uh, I had a in those early days um, uh, uh, the um, uh, then um, bam boom could uh, could speak a bit of English and um, and uh, one day he said I've got to get out of this place you know I think quoting a pop song <laughs> I've got to get out of this place and uh, and I. I uh, to me, uh, because having just discovered Buddhism and meditation, it had become clear to me that y- y- yeah, the mind is the, the, the dominant factor in, in all of our lives, and you can't really go anywhere to get away from your mind. And so I said to him, well, where can you go? Where is there to go? When he said, I've got to get out of, I've got to get out of this place. I said, well, where can you go? I mean, because your mind is always there. And he gave me this look, these farangs are stupid. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say that, but he gave me this, what are you talking about? You can go to Sisaket, you can go to Udon, you can go to Bangkok. You, you're like, but I was, you know, I, I was naively thinking, well, where can you go? Because wherever you go, you're just in your mind. It's, your mind is, is what's, what's with you wherever you are. So nobody can really go anywhere. That was what I was uh, trying to convey. He said, these farangs are total confused idiots. Life at a small branch monastery could also be very enjoyable. The Thai emphasis on social harmony and the conventions of non-confrontation that underpin it could make for a very refreshing change from Wat Pananachar, where not all of the more individualistic Westerners ranked emollient social skills among their spiritual goals. So emollient is an interesting. So 
um, as a polite way of saying people would tend to uh, express their opinions very easily to each other and were not sort of um, uh, living in a very fluid and harmonious way but the Westerners tended to speak their minds and um, and uh, and be free with their opinions and and uh, and uh, say uh, criticisms of each other and so uh, of at that time frequently the if someone was expressing an opinion or complaining about something then one of the other monks would say what's your mind yeah, what's your mind and so that um, that's that kind of confrontational or uh, aggressive or opinionated style is is um, it's not the way that things function in the, in the Thai branch monasteries. Many made good friends at branch monasteries and maintained contact with them over the following years. Others developed a much richer idea of the monk's life, the running of a monastery, and the relationship between a wat and the local communities. One monk was clearly reveling in life at a branch monastery when he wrote... Part of what I love about being a monk in Thailand is this simplicity. Walking barefoot through the village each morning, the balmy weather which makes me feel safe and comfortable, and the simple physical chores. It's much easier to be comfortable in my body and be content within the simplicity of the monastic form. These characteristics of contentment and simplicity seem like basic matters, but I often come to think that they're really what life's all about. But even with the occasional epiphany, meaning a delightful, inspiring and wonderful uh, event, most of the Westerners were in agreement that, all in all, life at a branch monastery was a humbling experience. In the words of Venerable Natico, I know it's good for me. It hurts in all the right places. <laughs> it's a nice way of putting it. Although some of the Western monks found that their meditation practice progressed while at a branch monastery, this was by no means always the case. Lumpur was aware of this, but it didn't seem to overly concern him. The long-term effects of the training that he was trying to provide were not always measurable by short-term progress in meditation. The penetration of the Four Noble Truths was always the overarching goal, and a gradual and comprehensive training in all areas of the monk's life was the path. So uh, again, one of the, the things that came up in the reading yesterday or the day before um, it was uh, emphasized, even though that we have a lot of formal practice and a lot of time was given to formal sitting and walking meditation, then it was the, the ongoing training and working with attitudes of mind that occurred during the, the flow of everyday activity was a real sort of centerpiece of, of Lumpur's training. And so the, uh, and one of the, the statements that was um, quoted uh, yesterday or the day before was that a very simple teaching that Lumpur would, would emphasize would be like and dislike are of equal value. So when in the course of a day, when you're, you're inspired by something, there's one of those epiphanies, like, oh, this is so wonderful, this is so beautiful, I love this, to be recognizing, well, this is the mind liking something. Now, our, our habit is to say, well, that's good, so more of that is better, right? I'm not reading anybody's mind, that's just how we tend to function. So something is, 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 say that, walking through the village barefoot in the beautiful cool of the morning, um, how, how lovely, how beautiful, how inspiring, the sunlight coming through the, the, uh, the, the trees or the dust swirling you know, along the village path. Then uh, how beautiful, how lovely, how wonderful. So we call, but then Lumpur would always say, well, this is the mind liking. 
And then when it's dislike, you know, you're, you're, you're sitting there being eaten by mosquitoes or your legs are aching or uh, you've just been laughed at for falling asleep in the meditation hall and everyone's giggling at you, even the ajahn. Uh, and it's what you don't what you don't like rather than thinking that's bad and it's wrong and uh, and, and I hate this and, and it, the sooner this stops the better you'll say well this is the experience of disliking so taking a simple principle like that like and dislike are of equal value so he would continually emphasize so if you reflect on your moods in that way rather than I approve of this therefore that's good so no this is the mind approving that's all and oh, that's bad. It shouldn't be that way. That's really awful. No, this is the mind disapproving. It's it's disliking. That's all. It, it doesn't mean that we're being numb or stupid in the way that we we live, but recognizing you know, like and dislike are of equal value in terms of, of dhamma practice. So you, so when you dislike something, you don't then label it as bad and it's wrong and condemn it as a, something that's intrinsically bad in nature. It's just no. This is inconvenient or it's painful or it's it's causing someone distress. That's that's what it is, but we, it's not an intrinsic and inherent bad. It's not like the universe has gone wrong. It's just this way. It's a bitter taste. Or when something is what we like, rather than, therefore it's good, therefore more of this is better, therefore this should be kept. This is an intrinsic good. This is a good thing. Say, no, this is just the mind saying this is good. It's, it's making it a judgment. And so... Uh, in the, the flow of activity uh, through the formal meditation, uh, but also the, the other half or, or three-quarters of the day when it isn't formal meditation, and you're, you're um, on your arms round, or you're doing work around the monastery, or you're sitting talking with somebody, listening to a Dhamma talk, whatever it might be, and then you're witnessing those liking and disliking, coming and going, comfort and discomfort, uh, coming and going. And to change the view so that instead of uh, I like it, therefore it's good, therefore keep it, and I dislike it, I disapprove, therefore it's bad, and condemn it, to, to be instead changing the view so that the, the mind is relating to, to those qualities from a, a place of, of clarity and non-entanglement, non, non-attachment, rather than this is good there, uh, and, uh, and therefore is to be, uh, to be held or to be owned, this is bad, therefore it's to be condemned and rejected. And so it was much more that kind of aspect of, of the training that Lumpur would put at the center of things, that w- w- witnessing the attitudes of mind, n- noticing the opinions that come up, the, the emotional reactions and judgments, and not just brushing that aside while you get on with your practice. <laughs> like, I think, oh, that's all just, um, uh, uh, that's uh, extra, that's something outside the meditation. He would make that kind of, uh, say mindfulness of attitude and working with the attitudes that that arise uh, to establish this sense of of clarity and freedom from bias, not grasping goodness, not grasping badness. Um, that he would uh, say really put a, a, the, a the heart of his teaching and and would practice himself. So that uh, if you've read many of his books or uh, listened to his dhamma talks over and over again. He would say, you know, uh, uh, he would warn against attaching to goodness as much as attaching to badness, you know, and they said, in or that which is beyond good and bad, people don't know about that. People don't talk about that, but that's the most important thing for us to know. You know, what is beyond good and bad, and uh, so uh, I, th- I feel, in terms of getting a feeling for what he taught and, and the relationship of the 
the the formal practice it's really uh, it's uh, it's important to get that sense of of the formal meditation of sitting walking meditation and the, these uh, developments of particular methods like mindfulness of breathing or insight or loving kindness they were uh, all say skillful means or tools that were being used to help bring about that change of view that, that sort of revisioning of this life and uh, and revisioning the mind and, and what could be done with it because he could see if you attach to goodness try and keep it then it, it creates badness if you attach to uh, to to badness then it, you know it's suffering right there so he was say trying to uh, help uh, all of his students to get a sense of how the mind invests in things how it attaches to things and how it gives value to things and that if it's trained in a skillful way then it can uh, the mind can function without those kind of uh, burdens and limitations of attachment that makes sense very simple just the just a few words like and dislike are of equal value just just take that and just use that as a lens to look at your life and it's astonishing how many times during the day the mind goes to I approve this is good or, I disapprove that's bad you know, if you start if you have a little counter <laughs> it's <kind of> shocking <laughs> you know, I've, I've actually done that kind of thing one you know a few times not with a counter but just making a mental note of the the those sort of judgments that the mind makes it's really really shocking there's hundreds of times during a day that we do that and and uh, so when we hear these words you go really i don't know. i'm not i'm not that sort of a person but if you actually start doing the, the statistics it's 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 uh, startling how much the mind does that and how we believe oh i call it good therefore it's good it is good but <laughs> that's the mind calling it good that's awful that's terrible that's bad it shouldn't be that way here's the mind calling it bad and if you if you add it up it's it's like it's a real eye opener so the next section is called you have to stop to keep up formal entry into the monastic order is effected through the ceremony of upasampada this ceremony is provided over by a senior monk designated the upachaya or preceptor who is empowered to receive the new monk into the sangha and is required to take the responsibility for his welfare and training the relationship between the preceptor and his disciple is modeled on that of father and son lumpur became a preceptor in 1975 and over the next 6 years 14 non thais entered the sangha with him as their preceptor and there's a footnote saying seven of these monks remain in robes Munindo, Bodhipalo, Amaro, Nyanadamo, Jayasaro, Vajiro, and Kemanando. So seven survivors. I think we're all still alive since the printing of this book. <laughs> <laughs> At the conclusion of an ordination ceremony for Western monks, Lumpur would usually take the opportunity of this gathering of the Western Sangha to give a Dhamma talk, which would encompass the whole monastic training from its most basic foundations to the ultimate goal of the holy life. On one occasion, he began, as was his custom, by emphasizing the importance of living together in harmony, of how important it was that the foreign monks related to each other according to the conventions laid down in the Vinaya. He instructed them that, as a group of summoners, they should put behind them all consciousness of different skin color, language and culture, and look on each other with kindness and respect, as companions in the holy life. They should train themselves in speaking to each other mindfully, 
Again, this is Lumpur speaking here. If any problem comes up in the group, then speak about it in a skillful way. I see it like this. I feel like this. And then listen to what the other person has to say. The Western monks should learn to listen with an open mind, both to the words of others and to their own thoughts. When a view or opinion arose in their mind, they should be aware of it simply as that, a view, an opinion, and remind themselves that, as yet, they did not, in fact, know whether it accurately, accurately reflected the truth of things. The mind was the measure of the effectiveness of their practice. If they were experiencing mental suffering, that meant they had deviated from the Dhamma and allowed craving to arise. In community life, devotion to the Dhamma and Vinaya would dissolve all sense of conflict and bring a feeling of unity in diversity. Lumpur seemed to share the widespread concern in Thailand at that time that Buddhism was undergoing a sharp decline. He lamented the fact that so many people were going to monasteries merely in search of protective amulets or to be sprinkled with holy water. He opined that, and to opine is to express an opinion. He opined that the true Dhamma is disappearing. It's seldom seen. Few people are practicing. The Westerners seemed like a breath of fresh air. The sacrifices they had made to spend their lives as monks in the forest gave new inspiration to many people. And this is Lumpur speaking here. So with the world in its present state, I feel that for all of you to have come from so many countries to join in the training here is a singular thing. It's uplifting for the lay people to see you coming from abroad to become monks and to see that you can eat sticky rice. You can speak Thai. You can speak Lao. Uh, that you are able to endure life in such a poor and backward place. That's why, when I went to London, I said to people there that people come to Wat Papong for a doctorate in Buddhism. What I mean by that is that you come here intent on genuine transformation. To me, it's as if all of you have died and then been reborn. Everything here is different from your former life. You've had to get used to the weather, the food, all kinds of things. In order to become monks, You've strived to overcome all these obstacles, including learning the language and chanting for the ordination ceremony. Your efforts are inspiring. Nevertheless, he cautioned them, the ordination ceremony was simply a convention. It didn't, in itself, change them for the better. And it should be remembered that, ultimately, all such forms were empty. And this is again Lumpur speaking. Once you've taken the robe as a monk or a novice, you're still the same person as you were before. Postulant, novice, monk, it's all the same person. So don't have ideas about becoming anything. The things that we're practicing with are, at every stage, the same old things. Truly speaking, there are no ties and no Westerners here at all. There are just the elements of earth, water, fire and air. Nothing has any intrinsic existence. There are merely the conventions that we have created. The most important thing was the training of the mind. Don't follow after your thoughts. Try to keep looking at your mind. Through my own reflections, I've come to see that things which run in a circle are the fastest of all. You can't keep up with them. You have to just sit there calmly and watch them run. Don't run with them. When they come to entice you, don't get up from your seat. And when your mind stops, you'll become aware of many different things. If you run after your thoughts, you won't be able to keep up with them. But if you stop, 
then you will. It's strange. This applies to all mind objects, which are just the way they are, in accordance with causes and conditions. So, uh, if you can follow that, he's saying um, things that run in a circle are what uh, are, are the fastest of all. So he's talking about mental habits. You can't keep up with them. But if you uh, if you don't run with them, uh, you don't quote unquote get up from your seat, and the mind stops, then you'll be you'll be aware of many different things. If you run after your thoughts, you won't be able to keep up with them. But if you stop, then you will. So if the mind is chasing after its thoughts, getting lost in them, then there's that feeling of exhaustion and stress and can't keep up. But if there's a stopping, a letting go and a watching, then the, the, the nature of thought and the, the, the disentanglement from that becomes actualized. So that, as he says, if you run after your thoughts, you won't be able to keep up with them. But if you stop, then you will. So that it's a... The uh, a paradox, but that's you know, how it how it works in terms of the mind and the and the relationship to to thinking. Transcending the world required an understanding of what the world truly was and what it meant to be born into the world. Again, Longpore is speaking here. Wherever there is a cause, there will be a result. It's the way of the world. There are causes and results. There's birth and there's death. There's pleasure and there's pain. There's love and there's hate. The existence of all these things is called the world. Identification with any of these phenomena was the profound meaning of birth. Birth formed the cause for a proliferation of conditions and then, inevitably, death. Birth and death were inseparable, he said. Every single person who dies has experienced birth. To determine the middle way of practice, it was necessary to bear the end in mind. So this is all uh, Lumpur speaking here at the end. The highest teaching of the Buddha is to put things down. Take hold of them and then put them down. Pick them up to see what they are and when you know, then lay them down again. In the end, that's the way it has to be with everything. You have to put it all down. When you truly know all the things in your mind, then you put them down as a matter of course. If you don't, and it's, this is mine, that is mine, then you've got it wrong. If you really understand something, then you put it down. The teachings of the Buddha mean an end, an end without remainder. Whatever there is must be brought to a conclusion, to a complete end. The term kinasavo, which is a, a, an epithet for an arahant, means one who has come to an end of outflows. So kina is K-H-I-N-A. Kina is uh, the ending or the dissolution or the breaking up. And asava is the outflows, the, the kind of outgoing tendencies of the mind. So the ending of the asavas. One who has come to the end of the outflows. Knowing the good as good, so you know the good as good and then put it down. Know evil as evil and then put it down. Eventually, the teachings lead to an ending. Knowing the cause, you lay down the cause. Knowing the effect, you lay down the effect. So, having done that, then where do you dwell? Beyond cause and effect. Beyond birth and death. You abide there, where things are concluded, where they have come to an end. There's nothing there. The mind is at peace in the absence of cause and effect, birth and death, pleasure and pain. In that peace, there is no cause and effect. 
because the mind has gone beyond them. It's our ultimate aim in practice. The Buddha taught just this. What remains is for us to travel to that point. The Buddha has provided a boat and oars and left them for us to make use of. If we start to row, then the boat will move. If we don't, then the boat will remain motionless. The Buddha is the one who tells us what's what. He can't do the practice for us. That is our responsibility. So this is, uh, again, that, uh, that theme of uh, that which is beyond good and evil, uh, good and bad, um, and that uh, Lumpur also really, one of the things he really appreciated about the Western Sangha was that he could talk in this, uh, in this kind of um, liberating uh, language, this, uh, in speaking in terms of ultimate reality, and that the, uh, for the most part the Western uh, uh, Sangha members could understand exactly what he was talking about and was very much in accord with what had brought them to, uh, to the monastery and was uh, in, in, so inspiring their practice. So he, he really enjoyed the opportunity to be able to, to speak and to teach on this kind of a, of a high level. So that uh, he, uh, even though this is instruction given at, given at an ordination ceremony, he wouldn't feel like, oh, this, these uh, uh, candidates are probably, this is, this is probably out of their, they're out of their depth with this. But he, uh, he would speak in a way that he felt met the understanding of the people that were there. So it was uh, he, uh, an enjoyable opportunity for him to be able to, to talk on that level. And so that uh, he, uh, um, say, uh, appreciated, as it said, about being around the, um, the Westerners, uh, it said he, that, uh, as Ajahn Jayasaro puts it, Westerners seemed like a breath of fresh air because yeah, none of us were there because we'd been, we'd been sent there by our parents because we were difficult at home. You know? <laughs> we weren't going there to make merit or because we were engaged to someone and, and the, our fiancé's family had said uh, he's got to be in the monastery for three months before we can have the marriage, you know? which is frequently why... Um, uh, men would have a temporary ordination because of being expected to, to um, say, uh, spend some time in a monastery before they, they could get married. So Lumpur saw that basically the motivation of every, all the Westerners was dukkha, <laughs> that we had experienced suffering, dissatisfaction, and wanted to find a way to, to bring that to an end so that uh, it was a very uncluttered motivation. It was not loaded with any kind of cultural expectations or or any kind of worldly uh, sort of uh, aspirations. We weren't doing it to sort of climb up the social ladder or to, to, to make a, a name for ourselves, but rather it was for the one purpose that, uh, uh, of uh, liberating the, the, the heart. So I'll leave it there for today.